Okay. So let me, let me open the discussion up by way of the logic of these three points. First questions. And anyone have any questions about this being a unit? I, I, hopefully that's pretty clear when you see 1021 reference a man born blind and then 1022 jumps us a month or two ahead. Does that make sense that this is a unit? Makes sense? Um, the, other, the other reason why it, it's significant to me is Jesus' fury, his castigation of the false shepherds, the hirelings as he calls them, I think is clearly set up by how they treat this young, this young sheep. Uh, this, 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 I mean, if anyone's an object of mercy and compassion, it's this man born blind, and they just manhandle him and cast him out. And so the good shepherd shows up, and he is not best pleased with them. And lets them have it. So that's the, the the sign then sets up that, but the sign itself really kind of brings into clarity what happened before. Everything Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him. If if the Jews who had believed in him in eight is kind of like a, a miscarried faith, a kind of like faith that doesn't come to fruition, but hardens into unbelief. Here's a picture of it of it bearing out its full fruit, and this guy coming to faith and to worship in Christ. So he really does um he really does serve as a condemnation of the Jews. He's able to do the math. He's able to figure out, this is an unprecedented miracle. You must be from God. You must be a prophet. He, yeah, I mean, he, he does the math that all of them should have been able to do. Um, okay, any, any questions then on point one, how this fits in and all that? Hopefully that's pretty clear. We can spend our time in, on points two and three. So point two. Um, in my experience, out of, out of those possibilities, people actually tend to struggle more with the thought that illness and suffering might be due to personal sin or someone else's sin. And, uh, and so I just wanted to pause there for a minute. Now, certainly Job and his fr- Job's friends are wrong. The disciples are wrong in the assumption it's always one for one. Um, but that it does happen is, is clear, and yet I'll suggest this sometimes to people, and I've, I've gotten more people sort of recoiling and, wait, what, from that even suggestion than, um, than I would expect. So is anyone here this morning that's news to you or you're, you're struggling processing God might send sickness, God might send calamity or illness as, as a consequence for sin? Is that a, anyone struggling with that or any questions on that concept? Don. No, no, no. Mic- microphone, the five, five, five faithful listeners. My question would be why he doesn't do it more, more often. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, when you look at Ananias and Sapphira just striking people dead for um, taking spiritual credit they shouldn't and lying. Yeah. Okay. Cassie and then Lee. So is that why everyone would think that, he, uh, like, okay, he's blind because of his parents obviously sinned or did something wrong. Is that because they knew, like, in the Old Testament, okay, this is from God? Well, yeah, the Old Testament makes it clear that they would have had, unlike us today, today with more of evangelicalism, you get people who struggle with, wait, God does mean things, God does scary things, God does things I don't like. In, in, in sort of modern big evangelifish world, um, you, you've got a lot more struggling with the notion that God is sovereign over the cancer. God is sovereign over the birth defect. God is sovereign over the, the barrenness and so on. 
The Jews get that. They've, they know their Bibles. They know God says, hey, hi, I'm God, and I make alive and I make dead. <laughs> you know, they, they, so they get God has done it. And then the Mosaic Covenant is very much a be faithful and good things happen, be unfaithful and bad things happen. You go read Deuteronomy uh, 27, 28, 29, you get the blessings and the curse. Now, the Mosaic Covenant sits upon the Abrahamic Covenant, which is a covenant of faith. So I think rightly understood, you're, you're, you're in covenant with God because you have the faith of Abraham. Then for those people in covenant with God, God sets up the Mosaic Covenant. And if you read the Mosaic Covenant, if Israel's faithful, they should expect fertility, rain, security, economic prosperity, military victory. In, in, in one's, No, absolutely, a faithful Israel should expect all those things. Now, so, so there's a works element to the Mosaic Covenant. Now, the Mosaic Covenant isn't saving anybody. The Mosaic Covenant sits upon the Abrahamic Covenant, which is a covenant of faith, faith alone. But on top of that, the Mosaic Covenant, so the Jews are expectant to, are expecting, look, if you're good and faithful, your, your animals will have kids. There won't be famine. And there's a sense in which nationally that's true, right? So that's their backdrop. So they absolutely see the hand of God over all such things. And then the assumption is that because it frequently is the case that your sin brings judgment, all calamity is judgment of your sin. Well, the book of Job dashes that. That's clear. Um, and so even as Job is a righteous man and he's blessed and wealthy and he begins the book that way and he ends the book that way, um, so in one sense, in, even Job can sort of reinforce in the large. You read Proverbs, by and large, the righteous, the wise, they have an inheritance for their kids. They have food in their storehouses. It's the wicked and the indolent and the lazy who are, who are hungry and starving and begging. I've never seen the righteous beg for bread or his children. I mean, there is a sense in which, yes, if you're faithful to Yahweh, you're, you're going to be, by and large, blessed under the Mosaic Covenant. That's there, with clear exceptions like the prophets, like Elijah, who went and had to hide up by a river, and then it dried up, and then he got fed by ravens. I mean, so there's enough exceptions to the rule that it ought not to be absolute one for one, but that it frequently is, the Old Testament supports. They're not out of line for thinking that. They absolutely would see the hand of God in all such calamity. They would not think, well, God had nothing to do with that. They, they've read their Bible, <laughs> and they know Amos 8.10, does calamity befall a city unless the Lord has done it? They know that uh, God promises the cursing. I mean, think through, think through with, with, uh, with David. I'm going to raise strife in your house. So Absalom mounts a coup, kicks David out, and then, I don't know whether you want to call it rape or what, fornicates with Dave's wife, David's wives and his, his, his uh, concubines. And in one sense, that's the judgment on David's sin. So if you were like talking to one of those wives, why did this happen? In part, because David sinned a couple of years ago. That's why. Absolutely. I mean, that's inescapable in the text. The child died of David and Bathsheba. And the child's not guilty of their sin. The child's not going to be like stand before God for David's sin. The child died because of David's sin. Today, God visits the sin of the parents on the children. I mean, kids born in Muslim homes are taught idolatry. People born in, in secular homes are taught worldliness. People, I mean, of course, it's inescapable. You know, um, when, when we were at war with Germany, German children died because they're part of Germany. 
And so when we firebomb when we firebomb Dresden, hey, it happens, right? I mean that that is the nature of things. So absolutely. Um, so, so that's does that answer your question, or I'm just making it hard? Um, no, no, that's yeah. I was just like, how what the Jews all just think. Oh. There's a microphone. You got to talk into it. I'm talking into with the microphone, the microphone yes. as a talking okay. stick. Uh. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Anyways, so no, I was just saying, would the Jews just automatically think, okay, your child has blindness? You guys have to be under that some type of sin. That seems to be a common enough thought. The fact that even Job is, and I think we even are hardwired that way. Um, what'd you do wrong? Right. Um, right. And. And so you must have done something to, and, and, and the wrong ways is rooted in self-righteousness. I don't, you know, I, I haven't had calamity because I'm a good guy. If you have calamity, it must be because you did something wrong. That also makes me feel more secure that as long as I don't do something terrible, it won't come to me. I also want to believe if I'm a good little boy and I do what I'm supposed to do, then I won't have the calamity. Um, and so in that sense, it's sort of what I call prosperity gospel light, you know, most... I don't think anyone here is really struggling with the prosperity gospel, but the prosperity gospel lights a bit more seductive, which is you'll avoid the really big bad things. Your life will be basically smooth if you're faithful. Well, look at the most righteous, sinless man ever and tell me that. <laughs> they crucified him. Look at the apostles. Look at the prophets. But, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Lee is next. Oh, no, no, no. Natalie, you want to say something? Go, Nat. You're right there, Nat. Go. Sorry, Lee. Go. She's Have you talked about this subject before reference. and referenced third John verse two when it's that verse talking about linking your the health of your soul with the health of your body? <laughs> is that this or is that a different verse? Um, you're talking about third John two. Yes. Well, no, it's, that is Paul praying. Have I connected that with this? Right. No, I don't think I have connected that with this. I'm happy to do that right now. No, no. This is a really interesting prayer in third John. You don't need to say what chapter because there's only one chapter. So you're going to say 3 John 2. Um, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. I want your health physically to be proportional to your health spiritually. Try praying that. <laughs> I, want, I want your... Physical health to match your spiritual health. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, Lee, you're up. Then, Serena, were you raising your hand? Maybe. Okay, well, that's what Lee says. Got it. Okay. okay. Um, I, I have always struggled with the, the, I know there's a difference between punishment and discipline. Yeah. Now, that's the interesting thing when God is, sometimes it just is punishment. Yes. But then discipline would be the theory that you're going to learn a lesson yes. and be a better person because yes. of it. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so no, no, let's, talk, no, let's talk about that. So, no, so, so when people wrestle with the notion, we've been forgiven, God... The, okay, so let's, let's talk about some realities about our sin. From as far as the east is from the west, which I would suggest to you is pretty far, so has God removed our sins from him. And so people will sometimes take these truths to mean, to literally mean... God is completely unaware and never responds to our sin because we've been forgiven. Ananias and Sapphira would beg to differ. David would beg to differ. God will never, if you're forgiven, God will never bring up your sin 
before you in reference to him as the judge of the universe with the threat of hell. That will never happen. So think of it relationally. The one week, this is the, this is the logic of 1 Peter 1. If you call upon him as father who will impartially judge the universe. God is the judge of everybody. The demons, the Canaanites, the Philistines, everybody. God is the God of everybody. And he's the father of some of us. So when you are forgiven, you will never stand before God as judge, as the rest of the universe will. You will never stand before him in, in his law court, Paul's word picture in Romans, for your sin. You absolutely will get spanked by your father if you're deserving of it. In that sense, there's judgment and there's consequence. Um, people can struggle with this too. First John says we confess our sins. Like, why should I confess my sins? I've already been forgiven as if God's unaware of them. I'm, when, when I ask God to forgive me, I'm not saying, Lord, I know I'm going to hell because I sinned. Please forgive me. And, and No, I'm saying, Father, I came in after curfew and I'm sorry. Please don't ground me. It, it's familial discipline. And so in Hebrews 12, go to Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, it's explicitly clear God disciplines his children, and he does so redemptively. It's not punitive. It's not wrath is being poured out, and you need to taste the wrath. It's you need a spanking. Um, I need one. You know, it, it, that's the logic. So Hebrews 12. Uh, this is in the notes, but I did not have time to read it because I didn't have time to read it. Uh, so uh, verse 3, Hebrews 12. That was a nice tautology. Um, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So he's looking at people who he's concerned are going to shrink back, are going to get tired, are going to get lazy, are going to get passive. And he's saying, yeah, yeah, you've, you've suffered some, you've pressed on some, you haven't even started shedding your blood yet, so, you know, let's get moving. And he says, you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. And he quotes Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons or sons and daughters. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And I, by the way, a mark of how much more wicked our culture is than the culture of Paul's day, <laughs> you can find plenty fathers who don't do any disciplining because they think that's the thing to do. Um, <laughs> there's, at least in this regard, Paul's culture is more sane and more righteous than ours. He's living in Rome. Um, this isn't Paul. I said Paul. I don't know who's writing this. Not Paul. But the author of Hebrews. Um, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. Now, there it is, Lee. That's God's purpose and discipline. For our good, you may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. And again, this is, this does, sometimes people wrestle with this teaching as if it's wrong to 
be grieved by discipline and suffering. We're not, the, the biblical teaching of the sovereignty of God and God's control over these things is not supposed to turn us into masochists. Again, Jesus cried out, let the cup pass. The Psalms are filled with lament. Clearly, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Amen. Absolutely. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, and, and, and again, the logic is think rightly about your suffering. So he's looking at people who are considering to stop trying. In the context of the book of Hebrews, they might go back to the temple worship system. And he's telling them, no, 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 have you forgotten? He said, you've forgotten, verse 5, which is part of why I made it the point in the outline. Consider what God's doing with your suffering. They're looking at their suffering, and they're kind of like, what's the use? This is hard. We could, we could really avoid a lot of persecution. We could avoid a lot of trial if we just went back to the temple system. And he's like, no, 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 no. You've, you're forgotten. God's treating you like sons and daughters. In fact, if it wasn't hard, you'd be proving you're not really his child. So consider that, and therefore lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight your paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So how we think about our suffering, and, the, and that we consider it, is it going to be tr- critical in us enduring it and getting through it. The same thing with James. What's James' command? Think about your suffering this way. Count it, regard it, reckon it, all joy, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results, so that you be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Um, so that's the Bible would have us think rightly about our temptations and trials and sufferings. And in our passage this morning, Jesus and his disciples get in a discussion about understanding this man being born blind. So I, I think it's good for us to do the same thing. Okay, Serena. Apparently, Lee did not answer Serena's question. No, she just guided my question. Guided it. Um, so I was going to say, uh, would you please touch on, for people who have never thought about this before, yeah. what should our us, like rubber to the road, when uh, we are experiencing suffering, how should we think about it mm-hmm. and so we don't chase our tail? Sure. So I'll just tell you how I do it. Um, the first place I go when I, you just, I mean, it's as simple as getting a cold coming on. I'm not even joking, is Lord, you trying to get, there's a certain pragmatism to it. If God is trying to get my attention and teach me something, I would rather learn it sooner than later so it can be done and move on, right? So if it's the case that this is the Lord's discipline, I'd, I'd like to not be stubborn. And I mean, go, go, to, go to Psalm 32. Let me show you, we'll look at a couple of passages here. Go to Psalm 32, um, which is one of the passages in the notes which speak to... Uh, Illness brought on by sin. The, the theological term is harmoniological illness, which is just another way of saying you're sick because of sin. Um, Psalm 32. Probably about David and Bathsheba. We're not certain, but probably. Um, let's pick up in verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit... Is no deceit. So he begins by recounting and expressing the blessedness of being forgiven. In contrast to that blessed state, there's another state he was in. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you. 
I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions. Look, by the way, there's a wonderful war picture. David stopped trying to cover his iniquity in verse 5, which led to the Lord covering it in verse 1. Because either you're going to be like Adam and Eve trying to cover it up with the fig leaves, or God can provide a covering. So in his silence, when he wasn't acknowledging it, he was attempting to cover up his sin, not doing so good of a job. God's hands on him, and his bones are wasting away. His strength was dried up, some sort of malaise. He's languishing. Then he gets to instruction in light of this, given that contrast. Therefore, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in a rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance, Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So when I start getting sick, I'm wondering, am I being like a horse? (laughs) This is a bridle. I don't want to be stubborn. If, if it's the case that's going on, I'd rather heed this warning and not need any more of the rod. Um, so that's, that'd be a starting point. So then the question is, how do you deal with that without chasing your tail? Go to Psalm 139. The Psalms have a number of examples. There's another one I referenced in the notes in uh, Psalm 19, but 139 will do for now. There's some prayers that I think God always Answers in the affirmative. Um, and this would be one of them. Psalm 139 begins and ends with nearly identical phrases, but the difference is critical. Psalm 139.1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Compare that with verse 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. What's the difference? What? Invitation. The first one's a declaration. It's it's theological truth. You have done this. The psalm ends with, oh, do this. And we don't have time now. I've I've preached, taught on this psalm, but I believe as David meditates and considers God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, God is everywhere, God knows everything, God is sovereign in forming him, it leads from the, I know this is true, to inviting it. But the reason he wants God to search him Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be a grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, is there something I'm blind to? Is there some sin, some evil in me that you would have me be aware of that I'm not aware of right now? I, I think those are prayers God always answers. What I never see in the Bible ever is the Lord saying, well, if you have to ask, I can't tell you. <laughs> right? Now, think it, no, think it through. It is never the case, no, no, it is never the case that God's people want to please him, but gosh darn it, they couldn't figure out what he wanted them to do, because God hid it like Easter eggs, and they just didn't find the right egg. No, no, no I've met people who, if, if, oh, I, I didn't get this because I named it when I should have claimed it, or I should have proclaimed it, or I should have, no, that's not the way God works. It is never the case that God's people genuinely want to honor and please him, and there's a lack of information and communication. It's always that we are stubborn and go astray in our hearts. It's always that despite what we know, we do our own thing. So if you're saying, if God's sheep, if one of his children is saying, Lord, I want to please you. If there's some area that's displeasing, will you show me? I'll deal with it. I firmly believe God never says, you got to figure that one out yourself. 
Like, 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 what parent would do that? The child comes, I, I really, I know I've been stubborn. I know, I know I've been displeasing you. What do you want me to do different? How could I? And first of all, have you ever had a kid do this? I haven't. Father, 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 how could I be of more ple- pleasure? How could I please you and mother more? If such a miracle ever happened, I would not say, well, if you got to ask, I'm sorry, I can't. No, I, Right. Our Father wants us to be holy. He, he wants us to imitate His Son. He wants us to be pleasing to Him. And so when we say, help me, show me, I believe He always does that. So I would say that if you're starting with a question, is this brought on by my sin? If you spend an afternoon, some time in prayer, maybe prayer and fasting, and the Lord doesn't clearly bring something to mind, I would move on and, and not chase your tail for months and weeks. Um, I remember once... Um, what, what year, Serena, what year was it before Zadok was born when you're in New Hampshire? Twelve? It's okay, 10, year, 10, 10 11 years ago. Um, we were in New Hampshire. Serena was pregnant, and she began to bear the signs of miscarriage. She eventually did miscarry. took a couple of days. And, no, I spent the better part of a day, and I remembered God killed David's son because of his sin. Is there some... And while there was still some hope, where it wasn't clear what was happening, but it looked like, and eventually it was, I took the better part of an afternoon, just, Lord, if this is something I've brought on, I'd like to see it, and I'd like to deal with it. And then I moved on with my life. The Lord didn't bring anything clearly to mind, moved on. Um, but I don't regret doing that. Uh, you know, so, so Psalm 139 gives us that pattern that... Um, you can ask. God, God will answer these things. Psalm 19 has the same thing. Equip me of hidden faults. Um, may the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. So is that what you're getting at, Serena? In other words, the Lord does not want you spending the next six months, six years wondering if maybe your sin caused something. No, ask. You, you, you'll know. You'll know. Um, I wouldn't want to set someone up just, just second-guessing himself constantly. Okay, Wanda. Well, I'm asking this question because it's in my brain a lot, which is a scary thing. Um, But I'm asking it saying I've walked through a trial with my parents that was horrific and I saw God's hand, gave me a verse, Romans 12, 12. But you can get to a point sometimes you're like, you are a hard-hearted God that you can watch this child or this person struggle and you're not doing a thing about it. You know what I mean? And then when when you see... Oh, well, that was from God. For how many years did that poor person beg and go through all this misery? So it's kind of hard to fight. You see both sides of God, but that, to me, I struggle with that's what I'm saying yeah, yeah, at yeah. times. And I think that's why the few... T- so here's, here's... Let me answer that a couple of ways. There's a sense in which the animated dust doesn't get to call God into account. So we've got to check the indignation that wants to haul God to court. Job, as he's suffering, Job begins suffering very well. And as his friends keep saying, Job, you must have done something. Job, confess it and get over with it. God doesn't. God wouldn't do this if he didn't do this. Eventually, Job wants to call God to court. He says as much. Oh, I wish. I can't because he's God. I wish I had an attorney. I wish I could call him into court. I wish I could plead my case. And that is when the Lord shows up and says, okay, Job, you crossed the line. Elihu says, you, you, would, you would condemn God to justify yourself. So we never get to say, God, you better account for yourself. And, and you're not saying, you, I get the temptation, there are times. Now, God insists that he is good. 
And God, all the time, God is good. Amen. And God does let us peek behind the curtain occasionally. And so I would say, look to those times where we see God's good purposes and let that cause hope in the ones you don't see. So you look at Joseph. And again, that was a pretty... Joseph himself is fully satisfied. Joseph knowing, I now see... Here's a case where he gets to see why... Why do I... I mean, you can imagine... Why, why did my brothers fake my death and sell me into slavery? Why, when I was working hard for Potiphar, did I get accused of attempted to rape his wife? Why, when I was thrown into prison, did the first guy helped ignore me and not come back and help me get out? Oh, here's why. Millions upon millions of people's lives are saved, because I interpreted this dream, came up with a plan of saving the food, and Joseph is completely satisfied, completely satisfied. He has no complaint. Um, I look at that, and I, and I say, okay. And I look at um, this man born blind again. What honor that this guy gets to be in Scripture. He's got to put up with suffering 10, 20, 30 years. His parents have to suffer for 10, 20, 30 years. For the remainder of human history, he stands as a picture, an encouraging mark of faith, contrasted against the religious leaders of his day. He got to, the first, one of the first people he got to see is the Lord. He got to talk to Jesus. <laughs> he, he got to worship Christ while he was humble. And, and, and not glorified. This, this guy got such privilege and honor. God was good to him. God was good. We're going to see the same thing in, a, in chapter 11, man. In chapter 11. Th- th- let's go to chapter 11. Um, John 11. If you've got the NIV, you've got to take my word for it that your translation doesn't get this one right. No. No, they smooth it out because... No, because... Not every pass, every translation has got its problems. I just happen to know this is a problem for the NIV. I'm not trying to... ESV has got passages I don't like as well. But John 11. And they're trying to smooth out the problem the grammar creates. In John 11, I've translated this. I'm telling you the grammar is... Yeah, if you've got a New King James, New American Standard, ESV, any of the formal equivalent translations, they'll get this right. Um, so... A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. His brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. The implied petition, come, help. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. Kind of similar to what he said about the man born blind so the Son of God may be glorified through him. Now look at verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Verse 6 ought to begin with a so or therefore. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two more days. Because Jesus loved Martha and Lazarus, he didn't come immediately, which is precisely the question both of the women put to him. John is intentionally creating the problem. I believe the NIV smooths it out and says yet, right? Anyone got the NIV? It says yet. Yeah, they put an adversative conjunction in instead of a, instead of a causal, which gets it entirely backwards. 
John is right. I think we're supposed to go, wait, what? He loved them so he stayed longer. But that is exactly what Mary and Martha pick up on. Um, look at... Uh, Look at verse 21. Martha said, Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Yeah, yeah, John's picking, John has intentionally made us go, wait, what? And then one of the characters in the story voices our confusion. The other sister does the exact same thing. Look at verse 32. Now, when Mary came to Jesus, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell on his. She fell at his feet, saying to him, "Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. John is setting that up. And then Jesus raises him from the dead. And when we get here, I'll I'll answer that. But them getting to see the glory of Christ and the resurrection of Lazarus them going through those three days of grief and suffering and tears and lament, coming out the other side to see this um, first fruits, this prelude to the resurrection of our Lord, them getting to appear in this story in John is a greater gift than not going through the sickness. Lazarus died later. I mean, they were going to have a funeral for Lazarus one way or the other. Jesus loved them, and he gave them a better gift. So when we think of God giving us good things, we need to factor in good things in an eschatological, eternal sense, good things that will still be good and will still be rejoicing in a million years from now. And in that context, it changes things a little bit, right? Um, and so, yeah, but, but I, the way John tells that story is meant to press the point Christ's love for them is why he let Lazarus die, so that he could reveal his glory and raise him. And that was a more loving thing for him to do than to simply show up immediately and not let any of that happen. And it's challenging, but the Bible unapologetically exists. That's who God is. He, and so seeing that then and saying, okay, okay. He doesn't expect us to always get it. It's not as though, I don't know what you're doing. So I'll, I'll weep with people who are going through trial. I don't know what God is doing. I don't know what he's up to. I'm, I'm confident it's good. I'm confident when we see, we will not have suggestions that could have improved his plan. No, no, I don't. I, I'm confident that in the eternal state, we won't say, Lord, that was a really good plan you had for human history. However, <laughs> right? But... But he insists it's good. So it's not just deal with it, he's God and you're not. It's if you knew what he was doing, you would agree it is good. And if you're like, I can't imagine how I could ever think this is good. You're not God. Trust him. And he shows us enough of what he's doing, enough of the time, that it's not unreasonable of him to say, trust me on the others. Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. It is not unreasonable. It's not like he's give, he has not given us evidence, right? I mean, so go, so go, go to First Peter two. Um, First Peter two. And while, and while you turn there, I want to insist on two things. Absolutely. Weep with those who weep, those who are going through trial. 
you, you don't just say, hey, what are you complaining about? This is good. It, it is real trial. It is real suffering. It is real sorrow. We weep with those who weep. We lament with them. We, we pray with them. We pray for what seems good to us. We go to our Father with our requests. We say, Lord, we want Lee to get better. Lord, we're glad Byron's doing well. And we know that God will either do what we ask or something better, but the something better might be challenging to us, right? And so we read in 1 Peter 2, verse 21, For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Another thing um, that we that we often forget is the call to Christianity, the call to salvation is a call to suffering. We've been so the the last two hundred years in this country has been the exception, not the norm. Normally, to be a, what we're starting to get now, where people find out what you believe in, like, oh, you're a bigot. That's the norm. Um, they blamed the Christians for the fall of the Roman Empire because clearly the gods were unhappy at this new sect that didn't acknowledge them. Um, that's why Julian the Apostate tried to revert back to paganism um, after Constantine. Um, because, so, because normally, if, if, you're, if, you're, if you're localized God, you know, Ath- Athena over Athens or whatever, you, you'd go make offerings to your God. Well, if you lose in battle, well, clearly some people weren't worshiping Athena enough, and the Christians were the obvious targets. That's why they call them atheists. No, if, if you read the uh, if you read of the martyrdom of Polycarp, it's in Fox's book of martyrs. Um, Polycarp, who is a disciple of John, this is extra biblical, but it's pretty it's pretty old. It's pretty well sourced. It seems pretty accurate. Um, I mean, if Caesar's Gallic Wars are to be trusted, the martyrdom of Polycarp is right. Polycarp, this old man, he gets taken before the proconsul, and he's told to you know worship Caesar. He won't. So they put him in the Colosseum, they tie him up, the animals won't touch him. <laughs> Go read it. And they, the crowd is chanting, away with the atheist, away with the atheist, away with the atheist. And in a lull in the conversation, he points to the crowd and says, away with the atheists, <laughs> to them. And they eventually burn him um, at the stake. They burn him to death because the animals won't touch him. No, it's a remarkable story. But that's the norm. That's the norm. Um, the norm is you'll be, disguise, you'll, be, you'll be despised for my name's sake. Brother will turn against brother, child against parent. That's what Jesus said. So, so part of the problem, Wanda, sorry, part of the problem is we don't, we, I, I, we, don't, we, we, we don't bring those passages to mind and we forget about them. And then we're like, wait, what? If we would do ourselves a favor if we read those more frequently. You can go now. We're done. We're good. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry. Um, Hold on, I'm going to First Peter, then you can go rowdy. Hold on, hold on. So, no, but here's what I want you to see. I want, I want to insist God does not waste the suffering of his children. He does not needlessly bring suffering. So look at Jesus as the example. So to this you've been called. To what? To suffer. To this you've been called, First Peter 2.21, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. And then Peter's going to argue, very Jewish way of arguing, from the greater to the lesser. He committed no sin. And the clear argument is, none of us can make that claim. The injustices done against him far, 
far outscale any injustice you think has been done against you. If anyone had the right to say, hold on there, uh-uh, not putting up with that, mess with the bull, get the horns, or whatever, don't tread on me, whatever. If anyone had the right to say that, it's him. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. You and I do. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus didn't do the other thing we can sometimes do. You know what? You deserve it. It doesn't matter. It's okay. No, no. He, he wants justice. The part of you when you're wronged that wants justice is righteous. Read the Psalms. In God's time, at his institution, Jesus continued to trust himself to him who judges justly. Then look what God did. Look what God accomplished when his sinless son suffered without retaliating. Oh, look, he saved you and me. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you've been healed. For we were all straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That's the context in which he tells servants in verse 18. And in verse um, 18, servants who subject to your masters with all respect. And then chapter 3 begins, likewise wives. No, he's calling us to imitate this. Absolutely. But the confidence is as we suffer, and we suffer well, God will likewise use it for his purposes. He will use it for good. Our suffering is not meaningless. Rowdy. When Polycarp got executed, didn't the wind come and blow the flames away for quite some time before the executioner they, actually they had, had to plunge had a knife in his chest? Yes. They, the, there's a couple of various accounts. They, and so the animals wouldn't touch him. They couldn't get the fire to light for a while. There's also, there's also a story that when they did stab him, like a big wave of blood came. It, it, it's, it, the, the martyrdom of Polycarp is remarkable. Um, it's, I'm remarking on it, so there it is. It's remarkable. Uh, no, but Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read it. Uh, it's, it's, like I said, it's extra biblical, but it's, it's fascinating. And it's old. It's an old account. Absolutely. Okay. Don loops five minutes. All right, it won't take that long. <laughs> yeah. Um, God is, is God, as you said. Yeah. Um, as such, he gets to define the terms. Um, what good is and what yeah. good isn't. Um, God is good all the time. Um, God sometimes blesses us in ways we don't enjoy. Yes. It's nonetheless a blessing. Yes. It, 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 it's point of, I think that's the point of his, one of the points um, is that we learn to see God is, is good. Yeah. Um, there's also, I think, uh, a number of different reasons for suffering. Some of it is just because we live in a fallen world. Yeah. Uh, I think Jesus alluded to that when he talked about the, the tower falling on, on those uh, Galileans. Uh, yeah. And those who Pilate mixed their blood with the sacrifices. Right. But even there, it serves the purpose of a warning of the judgment to come because right. Jesus uses that as a... So yeah, sometimes the calamity can simply be, things are broken, people, pay attention. It get you out of your little daydream. So sometimes calamity comes as Lewis's metaphor, God's megaphone to wake up a sleeping world. 
Um, sure. There, I mean, we could make a long list of what he's doing. I, I don't know. I couldn't extend the whole list. Paul, keep him humble. First um, Corinthians 1, to prepare you to comfort other people. Um, it could be as a warning to third parties, like the people in the Tower of Siloam. Yeah. We, we can uh, suffer uh, vicariously or intercess, uh, intercessory suffering, uh, yeah. suffer on the behalf of another. Yeah. Uh, fa- fasting or. Uh, yeah, that type of thing. Well, like the children. I mean, again, the the te- these aren't incidental periphery doctrines. In the Ten Commandments, God says, "I visit the iniquity of the parents and the children." It's not the Ten Commandments are not periphery. They're, they're kind of central. And we why what? Um, and and it gives an idea of how we've drifted to know if you're nice and good, nice happy, good things happen sometimes. Yeah. Depending on your definition of good. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Right now, absolutely. Well, no, and the, the other, well, Serena, you can bring us home. But while we go there, I'll give the example of Abner. Um, I've asked, he's given me permission to tell the story. Um, he was, he, I think I've used this before. He went to the dentist to get a filling done. And, and it, it was Jake. And Jake pulls out his needle. And Abner does not, like his dad, does not like needles. And Abner's, <gasps> so I asked Jake to leave for a minute. And I say, Abner, look, this needs to happen. And it's okay for you to be scared, but you're going to need to hold still. Will you trust me? And with tears in his eyes, he says, okay. And he was terrified, and he held still. And he squeezed my hand for dear life. And I was not disappointed that he was scared. Him trusting me doesn't mean he's got to be like, this is a good needle. I can't wait for the needle. (laughs) That's not what trusting me requires. Trusting me requires he holds my hand and he holds still. And the tears and the fear, that's totally fine. And I'm, and I'm not, my heart's not hard. Like, I like it when my son's scared. This needs to happen for his good. And I'm sympathizing with him. And I will, I will hold his head and I will whisper in his ear and comfort him while the needle's coming in. That's you and me trusting God in difficult circumstances. That, that's, you don't need to know why. Abner couldn't, at the time, he's probably three or four, comprehend cavities and teeth and things. I'm your dad. I know it's good for you. you. This needs to happen. You need to trust me and hold still. And he did. And I was incredibly proud of him. Go. And he's never had a cavity since. He brushes and flosses <laughs> like nobody's business. <laughs> this is true. He's like, I ain't doing that again. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. What are we going to say, Serena? Bring us home. I was going to say, could it be partly because, because obeying God and following his patterns generally leads to better outcomes that we struggle with thinking, well, I did things right. So the suffering shouldn't happen to me. Like if when our culture more had the, had a higher rate of nuclear families, children were happier. You know, when people had the idea that you should discipline your children and not just let them run wild in the streets, people, you know, children are happier. And so, um, I mean, even in my own life, if I'm struggling with like, I'm having a really bad attitude, so I'm exhausted. And it's like, well, I spent the last four nights you know, Googling Halloween costumes, and now I'm tired. Well, that's part of my, you know, that's my own fault. No, 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 there's a reason why even secular believers can take, can mine the book of Proverbs and figure out some principles that'll make their businesses more successful. There's a reason why a Christian work ethic used to mean a good thing, and there's a reason why the Puritans, to quote Cotton Mather, they came over to do good and ended up doing well. Faithfulness birth prosperity and the child devoured the mother um 
Scott and Mather. But yeah, there's a reason why, in general, where, pres- where people apply the ethics, the principles, the standards of God, in general, it promotes the, the prosperity of, of people and c- civilizational prosperity, the well-doing of men and women, in general, yeah. Then read Ecclesiastes, there's exceptions. So that, that type of thing does also lead into our notion that we see that in general, if you act wisely and righteously in general, it frequently leads to material blessing, especially in a, in a civilization that will reward hard work and diligence. Absolutely. So there is something to that. We just need to realize the, the most righteous man who ever lived was poor, a carpenter, had nowhere to rest his head, foxes have holes, and he was crucified. And if they do that to the master, what would they do to the disciple, Right? Okay, we're at time, ladies and gentlemen. I'll stick around for a few more minutes. Thank you, and we'll see you all tonight. God bless.